Good morning. Okay, just testing. All right, I'm on. It's good to see you all. So last week, Tim introduced us to William Wilberforce, who leveraged his enthusiasm and his influence in politics to catalyze an entire nation to begin abolishing slavery. We ask ourselves what his example means for us today as we confront our own blindness to justice. How do we stand up for those who are oppressed and ignored in our community? Today, I want to introduce you to someone who took a different approach to help those who suffered because she too suffered. Her approach was beauty. But first, I want to read you a letter. Dear Jane, we've never met. Maybe, if you were still alive, I would find you at a poetry reading, timidly approach you afterward, awkwardly thrust a copy of your latest book in your hands, and ask with a stupid, adoring grin on my face, would you sign this, please? But if we had met somewhere, I'd actually want to take you aside for just a moment and whisper, thank you, like I might want to say to a surgeon who has saved my life. I would look you in the eyes and say, Jane, thank you for helping me see in the dark. Thank you for saying my unsayable thing, mental illness, in a language that I love, poetry. Thank you for showing me pain will not destroy me. That though it's a mystery, suffering can turn into a kind of beauty. Thank you for showing me a different way of writing from a quiet, hidden life, an honest life, a life lived with solitude and with others. I'll risk sounding like a really cringy poet and say, it's true, Jane, you saved me with your words. So I wrote that letter to a woman named Jane Kenyon because she's one of my saints that I would put on my wall. Jane Kenyon was an award-winning poet. She wrote four books of poetry in her life and translated a book of Russian poetry by another female poet. She lived a rather short life from 1947 to 1995. So unless you're a literary buff, she may be relatively unknown to you. So I'd love to introduce you to her and read a few of her poems to you today. I don't know if you knew this, but hearing poetry, reading it, and writing it actually have been studied and shown to help us deal with difficult emotions and our mental well-being. In other words, poetry heals. So I'm gonna share a bit about her life and about her work, and then we're gonna practice listening with God to one of her poems. If you've ever done Lexio Divina, um, it's listening to what God may be saying to you through scripture, and we're gonna do that through poetry. So Jane Kenyon was born in 1947 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She was married to the poet Donald Hall, and to kind of put it in context, they were both friends with the Kentucky writer Wendell Berry. Father Rule, or her, sorry, her father's name was Rule. He was a pianist, and her mother's name was Polly. She was a singer turned pianist turned seamstress. And they lived in a farmhouse in Michigan. It was a home where music was always playing. They were surrounded by books. And there was also a little bit of inhibition in their their um, home, like giving yourself wholly to something was a little bit dangerous. Um, I think it's also important to remember or to emphasize that she grew up with religion, sort of this um, religion that her grandmother passed down to her. 
Um, a writer says that religion at grandmother's house for, for Jane Kenyon was comprised of rooms full of theological terrors and restrictive rules. She wasn't very enticed by this kind of God. Jane grew up in a one-room schoolhouse, but then in junior high school, she found that she liked poetry. There were not a lot of other kids around except for her siblings, so she developed a rich inner life, which a lot of artists do. She found that poets are not afraid of feeling, and she liked that. Poetry was a safe haven for her. She did struggle with depression as an adolescent and adult, but wasn't really diagnosed until she was an adult. So she kind of always lived on the periphery of things. Um, in her 20s, she started at the University of Michigan in the poet Donald Hall's class, an introduction to poetry for non-English majors. And then the following fall, she enrolled in his poetry class. Um, Donald Hall put together these student gatherings, which were undergraduates all the way through graduates, and they would sit around, drink beer, and critique poetry together. This is where Kenyon really started to develop as a writer. A few years later, in 1970, she and Donald Hall began seeing one another. They debated getting married because there was a 19-year age gap between them. They thought that Jane would one day experience this really unbearably long widowhood if Don died. But despite that, in 1972, they married. He was a divorced father of a young adult and a teen at age 43, and Jane Kenyon was 24. Not long after, they decided to leave behind this academic, kind of socially driven party life in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and take up residence in Donald Hall's ancestral farm called Eagle Pond Farm in New Hampshire. Living in this small farming community, Donald gave up a life of teaching and being constantly recognized for his writing, and he exchanged it for a quiet, more intimate life. Jane, on the other hand, was just beginning her writing career, and it was actually her idea to move out there. She entered this rural world of history, place, and Donald's ancestors everywhere around her, even in her own home. There was this strong cultural and social expectation in this small town of Wilmot, New Hampshire, and that expectation was to be a part of the church. So one Sunday, Don said, why don't we try to attend the South Danbury Christian Church? So they did. This is actually the church where his grandmother, Kate, um, whose farmhouse they had bought. This is where she had played the organ for 78 years, from the age of 14 until she was 92. Well, that Sunday or shortly thereafter, the minister referred to Rilke, the poet, in a sermon, and Jane was intrigued. She asked his advice on some spiritual reading, and he referred her to the mystics. Soon, she and Don were participating, in Bible studies and volunteering, and the church became a weekly rhythm of their life. I find it really interesting how they chose to just uproot their life and, and start sort of this small, um, slow pace of life. But back in Ann Arbor, um, they, they had kind of had a, a party life. You know, you'd be invited to a gathering and it was just expected that you would reciprocate. Um, 
So early in their marriage, while they were still hosting these reciprocal kind of parties in Michigan, the doorbell would ring, and Jane and Don would both make a beeline for the back door, because neither one of them wanted to have to remember who was at the door, have to remember their name. And more than once, they would bump into each other, trying to escape the doorbell. So they both preferred the quiet life. They preferred intimate gatherings of friends, where they would talk about life and poetry and other things. In this new life, Jane found a sense of community like never before. If you've ever lived in a small town, you know that people know people's business in small towns. Wendell Berry says about her that she offers an example of living as a resettled exile, not as a chronic wanderer. So she entered this, this sort of community where Donald's history was just um, generation after generation, and she decided to enter into that and make it her own. And moving to Eagle Pond gave her time to give herself wholly to something, which was poetry. So she and Donald had this beautiful rhythm of work and rest, which I think is um, pretty challenging for me, honestly. Um, Don would bring Jane a cup of coffee first thing in the morning, and she writes a poem about their rhythm, if I can find it. It's called Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill in the birchwood. All morning, I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day, just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. So that was, that was the rhythm of their life. And Jane actually wrote that she would sometimes, on that walk in the morning with her dog, she would just look around and say, how is it that I get to live in this phenomenal place? They actually lived at the base of a mountain. So they fixed up this old house. They tried vegetable gardening. Um, they kind of abandoned that as, as Jane began to love flower gardening. And Donald Hall talks about, in their rhythm of life, they had a lot of third things that they did together, habits, activities, games, where they weren't necessarily looking toward one another as a married couple, but they were kind of looking outward, doing things together. And he says that is one of the, the things that really kept their marriage strong. They would play ping pong in the afternoon sometimes together. They had the church. They didn't have any children. Um, but by doing these things, it helped their marriage to thrive in a companionship. And I love what Donald Hall says about their lives. He said, the best moment of our lives was one quiet, repeated day of work in our house. So both of them working and then coming together and working. It was this deliberate slowness that I think is really beautiful. So they have this, this life of chosen solitude in a way. I mean, when I think of a poet or a writer, it's someone who goes off, right? And they go off and write alone. But actually, their solitude was within community. Jane was always asking Don to give her feedback on her work, as he did with her. And then she would also have friends that she would meet regularly with and have them work on her poems, sometimes for about 10 months before she would 
submit them for publication. Another part of her story is mental illness. Jane Kenyon was, wasn't diagnosed until 38 with manic depression or bipolar disorder, which she believed was genetic in her family. She took a lot of meds for it and struggled for months of feeling well and then depressed and then not writing and then coming out of it again. She wrote about her depression to explain to people who didn't understand this is a kind of desolation. She wanted, to, she wanted people who had never experienced it to know what it was. And she also wanted to ease people's burdens. So I'd love to read you a couple of her poems about depression. Bottles. Elleville, Ludiomil, Doxapin, Nopramin, Prozac, Lithium, Xanax, Wilbutrin, Parnate, Nardil, Zoloft. The coated ones smell sweet or have no smell. The powdery ones smell like the chemistry lab at school that made me hold my breath. Suggestion from a friend. You wouldn't be so depressed if you really believed in God. Often. Often I go to bed as soon after dinner as seems adult. I mean, I try to wait for dark in order to push away from the massive pain in sleep's frail wicker coracle. Once there was light. Once in my early 30s, I saw that there was a speck of light in the great river of life that undulates through time. I was floating with the whole human family. We were all colors, those who are living now, those who have died, those who are not yet born. For a few moments, I floated completely calm, and I no longer hated having to exist. Like a crow who smells hot blood, you came flying to pull me out of the glowing stream. I'll hold you up. I never let my dear ones drown. After that, I wept for days. I don't want to leave us in the mire of depression, so I'd love to read you a poem about coming out of it. Back. We try a new drug, a new combination of drugs, and suddenly I fall into my life again, like a vole picked up by a storm, then dropped three valleys and two mountains away from home. I can find my way back. I know I will recognize the store where I used to buy milk and gas. I remember the house and barn, the rake, the blue cups and plates, the Russian novels I loved so much, and the black silk, the black silk nightgown that he once thrust into the toe of my Christmas stocking. I love this story that she tells about reading these poems in public. She said, as I was reading Having It Out With Melancholy, which are those first sets of poems that I wrote, or read to you, she was in Louisville, Kentucky, and a man in the second row who'd been looking at her intently as the poem went on, and, and as I read that, it talks about unrelenting depression. This man took his hand and he put it over his heart. And then he brought his hand to his heart over and over, and he just looked in her face, and she says, I knew that he also suffered. So people were moved by these poems, and that's actually what drew me to Jane Kenyon in the first place, were her poems on depression, because I too was struggling with that. 
not only depression, but there was also cancer in her family. Many people in both her family and Donald Hall's family both fought cancer, and then the two of them each faced cancer in their marriage. In an interview with Bill Moyer in 1993, which you can go online and watch, um, if you just look up interview Jane Kenyon, um, where they both talk, both Donald and Jane, talk about his colon cancer and the toll it took on both of them. At the time, he wasn't sure how long he had to live during this interview. And she writes about his potential death in her poetry. Ironically, in January of 1994, Jane contracted leukemia, and she only lived for one more year and a half. Donald Hall ended up outliving her by 31 years. And one of the most beautiful books I read in preparing for this was a book by Donald Hall called The Best Day, The Worst Day. You can check it out at the library. It's a beautiful prose um, just recounting of their marriage together. Um, it really is unusual for two poets to be married to one another and not tear each other apart. <laughs> and it's also unusual for two people in such an age gap, I think, at least in our day, to have a successful marriage. So I'd love to look at a few of the themes in her work that I think come out and, and speak to who we are here in our, here we are today. Um, so she had this theme of view of God changing over the years. A.W. Tozer writes that the thing we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when she moved to Eagle Pond Farm with Donald Hall, she was basically done with religion, done with God. She didn't want this scary um, sort of God that she'd grown up with her grandmother. So they get into the habit of going to church, and then through the influence of a close friend, and then she starts to see the spiritual dimension that's in poetry. She said before she knew it, she became a believer. So this frightening legislative God becomes a God of mystery to her, love, forgiveness, and rescue. Almost overnight, it's like she didn't even realize what was happening to her as she started to believe. One thing that really helped her, and I think um, speaks to you know, the saint series that we're doing, she said that remembering that she was a part of the body of Christ really helped her in times of depression. She doesn't write about her faith overtly, like you would think maybe a Christian artist or Christian poet would do. She's not very overt, but there's tons of allusions to Christianity in her poems. John Timmerman writes that her faith isn't passive, merely trusting that things will have a hopeful outcome, but it is an active, pursuing the presence of God in a world rent by suffering. So in her work, she, worked, uh, she, she addresses struggle, doubt, mystery, and spiritual loss. And she never overdoes it. She's a very simple poet. Um, and these things just seem to come out of her. In the midst of her manic depression and leukemia, she started to ask God, if God could lead her through this? Or is there any meaningful presence to God? I think she's really asking, is God trustworthy when I don't understand what he's doing? She felt, too, that many times she was given poems, almost like dictation. If you're an artist or a writer, you might get kind of what she's talking about. 
um, Donald Hall says that she had an experience of the Holy Spirit one time, and she was very quiet for days. And then he said that that sort of spirit that she experienced started to enter her poems. It was really beautiful. In one of her books, um, there's a scripture that she uses, Psalm 139, which happens, we did Psalm 138 for our reading today. Um, And in Psalm 139, to her it was saying, darkness and light, it's all the same. It's all from God. It's all in God and through God and with God. There's no place I can go that God's love does not pursue me. In her poetry, Jane Kenyon sought to evoke emotion and details to keep the memory of people, places, and things alive. In a world we can't often comprehend, she was the poet seeking out the great goodness. This is called Briefly It Enters and Briefly It Speaks. I am the blossom pressed in a book, found again after 200 years. I am the maker, the lover, and the keeper. When the young girl who starves sits down to a table, she will sit beside me. I am food on the prisoner's plate. I am water rushing to the wellhead, filling the pitcher until it spills. I am the patient gardener of the dry and weedy garden. I am the stone step, the latch, and the working hinge. I am the heart contracted by joy, the longest hair white before the rest. I am there in the basket of fruit presented to the widow. I am the muskrose opening unattended, the fern on the boggy summit. I am the one whose love overcomes you, already with you, when you think to call my name. Like many poets, um, her work demands us to listen. In order to hear poetry, you have to listen. Wendell Berry wrote about her. He said, her work in particular demands quiet. And I don't think she would have written the poems that she did if she hadn't lived in a chosen sort of quiet. Quiet demands that in this age of political, economic, educational, and recreational pandemonium, One must become quiet enough to listen. Those are the words of Wendell Berry. If you're a reader of poetry, then you know that poems are meant to be heard, not simply read on a page. There's a lyrical, musical quality to them, a rhythm, even in free verse poetry. Jane Kenyon's work invites us to get quiet enough to listen, to hear both sound and silence. Both are essential to listening. And... Um, I think her mastery of tone, which is the way the words are arranged, the sounds, the vowels that she used, how it's outlined on the page, how she ends the line, all of these things enabled her poems in particular to sound like prayer. Her work also conveyed this really potent, honest emotion by means of the luminous particular. And the luminous particular is the details, the specificity, She wrote that the poet's job is to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth in such a beautiful way that people cannot live without it. 
to put into words those feelings that we all have that are so deep, so important, and yet so difficult to name. The poet's job is to find a name for everything, to be a fearless finder of the names of things, to be an advocate for the beauty of language, the subtleties of language. She said, I think it's very serious stuff, art. It's not just decoration. The other job the poet has is to console in the face of the inevitable disintegration of loss and earth, all of the tough things that we face together as humans. She said, we have the consolation of beauty, of one soul extending to another soul and saying, I've been there too. The poet tells the whole truth about the complexity of being a creature that lives and dies. The poet consoles. As Donald Hall wrote, poetry gives the griever not release from grief, but companionship and grief. And that's what art can do. It can give us this sense of a friend alongside of us. She also wrote that the pleasure, of, or a poem is a thing of pleasure, and somehow, mysteriously, it works against the sadness, even when it itself is sad. Jane's work and life show us that practices like weekly worship, solitude, and community, practices that we value and we do here at Redemption on a regular basis, these things form a life. These habits enable Jane to build a quiet, deeply fulfilling, and supported life free from many of the pressures to be well-known, which is a constant struggle for writers in particular and artists of all kinds. She was, in fact, well-known, and people are still finding the consolation of her work 30 years after her death. I love how she explores who God is in a very naturally lived way, asking questions that we all ask. God, are you there? Are you trustworthy? And she was asking what he was doing in her own life, what was he doing through the depression? What was he doing through cancer? And on the journey, she moved, her, her faith moved from a threatening, scary God that she wanted to have nothing to do with to a loving, forgiving one who drew her out of the well, giving her poems and the Holy Spirit lighting on her in the most sublime moments. And also, what are you doing, God? Poetry and other art forms are a place where our struggles, our doubts, and questions can be explored, sometimes safely. Her poetry invites us to get an inside look into a person who is faithing it. She didn't have an easy life. One day at a time, one poem at a time, one brick at a time, one word at a time, one breath at a time. Through the darkness of mental illness, through her loved one's own cancers, and then her own battle with leukemia. And then she dared to give herself wholly to something, in fidelity. She did that in her, in her marriage, which was quite beautiful, and in the community that was not really her own, but really, she dared to give herself to poetry. Her quiet life gave her the ability to listen and to share the luminous particular, the details of her life, of nature, suffering and unspeakable beauty. When asked, why does poetry matter? She said, poetry tells the truth. 
the human truth about the complexity of life. It tells the entire truth about what it is to be alive, about the way of the world, about life and death. Art embodies that complexity and makes it more understandable, less frightening, less bewildering. It matters because it is consolation in times of trouble. Even when a poem addresses a painful subject, it manages to be consoling somehow, if it's a good poem. Poetry has an unearthly ability to turn suffering into beauty. So you should have received a little card and a pencil. And what we're going to do is do a little Lexio Divina, or little spiritual practice with one of her poems. And I wanted to do this because um, I wanted to show you a way to engage poetry. If you're, if you're kind of like, poetry's cool, but I don't know, there's not a lot of poets that are accessible to me. One of the things I re get really fired up is helping people find poets that they can get something out of, because there's tons of poets that um, write in a way I think we can all understand and get something out of. Um, and like I said before, Lexio Divina is this way of listening to scripture. It's not like sitting down and studying scripture. It's just letting the words wash over you and letting God speak to you through your imagination. It's a listening exercise. So don't worry about remembering everything. I'm not going to put the words of the poem up here because I want you to listen and hear the sounds. Um, the poem that I'm going to read is called Let Evening Come. which I have right here. <laughs> so what I'll do is I'll read the poem two times in a row, and then I'll ask you a few questions about it. And you can write down you know, a word or a thought, an impression that you get if you want to. The first time I read it, I encourage you to close your eyes if that feels good for you. Let evening come. Let the light of late afternoon shine through chinks in the barn, moving up the bales as the sun moves down. Let the cricket take up chafing as a woman takes up her needles and her yarn. Let evening come. Let dew collect on the hoe abandoned in long grass. Let the stars appear and the moon disclose her silver horn. Let the fox go back to its sandy den. Let the wind die down. Let the shed go black inside. Let evening come. To the bottle in the ditch, to the scoop in the oats, to air in the lung, let evening come. Let it come as it will, and don't be afraid. God does not leave us comfortless. So let evening come. I'll read it a second time. Let evening come. 
Let the light of late afternoon shine through chinks in the barn, moving up the bales as the sun moves down. Let the cricket take up chafing as a woman takes up her needles and her yarn. Let evening come. Let dew collect on the hoe abandoned in long grass. Let the stars appear and the moon disclose her silver horn. Let the fox go back to its sandy den. Let the wind die down. Let the shed go black inside. Let evening come. To the bottle in the ditch, to the scoop in the oats, to air in the lung, let evening come. Let it come as it will, and don't be afraid. God does not leave us comfortless. So let evening come. As you heard the poem, what caught your attention? A word, a phrase, maybe an image, a sound, texture, maybe a smell came to mind, or maybe you even felt a physical sensation in your body. Whatever it was, I invite you to write that down. In a few more moments, what might God want to say to you about what you wrote down? nothing caught your attention, that's okay. But maybe there's something that you would like to say to God right now, either in response to the poem or just whatever you're thinking about right now.
always a little weird to break the silence after Alexia Divina. I like to take a deep breath. <laughs> and I just wanted to share that with you because it's something that each of us can do on our own with a scripture or with a poem. You can do it with music. You can even do it with visual art and nature. Um, just asking a few simple questions. God, what are you showing me in this? What's catching my attention? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this poem, which acknowledges evening and darkness, whether that is tangible or abstract for each of us. It helps us to think about our lives in a new way. We thank you for the life of Jane Kenyon, who wrote personally and honestly to console others. She challenges us to think about our view of God and how we can share our own struggles to console one another. Enable us to imagine how we can make solitude, community, and worship natural habits. Give us the desire to create a slow, rooted life, to be resettled exiles, not chronic wanderers. Help us to engage beauty, to heal ourselves and our world. May we find it each day and follow its lead to otherness. Expand our vision to know how we can notice life and nature. Teach us to practice the arts, music, dance, building, craft, writing, so that we can console one another and say, I've been there too. Amen. Amen. If you would stand, please, we're going to receive communion. And the way we do communion at Redemption will just be released row by row. You'll come forward and you'll be offered a plate and, um, of bread and a cup. Just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and then receive it. As you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. The reason we do this is that on the final night Christ was with his disciples, he had them eat, eat from the same loaf of bread and, and drink from the same cup, kind of sharing in oneness this meal that he said is a symbol of his body and in his blood. Blood meant life to them. His, a symbol of his life. He said, every time you, you gather, take this symbolic meal and, in a sense, take my life into your life, be made out of the stuff I've made of and I'm made of and then sent out as my hands and feet into the world. So that's why we receive communion. And it's also why we, we don't set any limits on it. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us at the table. But first, let's pray. If you would pray with me a blessing. God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Will you come and live inside us? Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All of this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?